Hey, Heidi, have you heard about Mixers? Of course, Jamie. Mixers is changing the game for women's wellness. They make delicious, hormone-friendly supplements that truly help us thrive, especially because they're highly absorbable. You just mix them into your water and sink. Absolutely. I first became obsessed with their flagship product, HerTime, which magically balances hormones to combat those pesky PMS symptoms. As someone with bad periods, that was a godsend to me. And they've got one designed specifically for women going through menopause, women who are pregnant, and one called Her Power to combat brain fog. Sign me up. And Mixers doesn't stop there. Mix in your desired solution from their product range with Her Time to make a mocktail tailored to your unique needs. Amazing. So if you're dealing with gut issues, you'd simply combine Her Digest with Her Time for a soothing mocktail experience. You know it, girl. Or if you're experiencing menopause symptoms like vaginal dryness or low libido, just mix in her pleasure and va-va-voo. <laughs> it's all about personalizing your mix and finding what works best for you. Mix Hers has truly revolutionized the way women approach their hormone health. Absolutely, Heidi. So if you're ready to thrive and take control of your hormone health, head on over to MixHers.com today and explore their incredible range of supplements and discover a new world of hormone health possibilities. Again, it's like, oh, you're tired. Oh, you're anxious. Oh, take some more antidepressants. You know, that was terrible. I I knew there was something wrong with me. Welcome back to an all-new season of Off the Gram, the show where we bring you straight into the trenches with us to help you live your best life, channel your inner girl boss, and navigate the ever-changing landscapes of wellness and social media. Okay, Heidi here. I'm doing a solo show today because Jame is on air as we speak. (laughs) And I don't know about any of you, but I feel like every day I hear another friend or a friend of a friend getting a cancer diagnosis. I've had way too many family members affected and in worst cases taken from us to mess around with anything dubbed carcinogenic. And that's one of the many reasons that we do so many shows here on Off the Gram about wellness, about staying healthy, and about prevention. So I'm really excited today to interview Elizabeth Benedict, an author and cancer survivor whose novels include the national bestseller Almost, the National Book Award finalist Slow Dancing, and the classic book on writing about sex in fiction, The Joy of Writing Sex, in print for 25 years. Elizabeth's personal essays have been selected as notable in five editions of Best American Essays. She has written reviews and articles for the New York Times, Boston Globe, Esquire, and been a regular contributor to Japanese Playboy and Huffington Post, writing on sexual topics, politics, money, and literature. And on figures from Monica Lewinsky to British psychoanalyst Adam Phillips. She conceived of and edited three prominent anthologies, including New York Times bestseller, What My Mother Gave Me, 31 Women on the Gifts That Mattered Most. Her books are featured regularly in reviews and interviews, including the BBC's Women's Hour and Australia Public Radio. A graduate of Barnard College, Ms. Benedict has taught creative writing at Princeton, the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and Columbia, and is on the fiction faculty at 
the NYS Summers Writer Institute. Today, we are here to talk about her latest book, Rewriting Illness, a front row seat into Elizabeth's journey as a woman with a lifetime of fear about getting sick who finds a lump where no lump should be. This insightful memoir details months of medical mishaps, coded language, and doctors who don't get it. And it serves as a learning for anyone who may be going through this process. And as someone who read it cover to cover, I highly recommend it. Listen to this show if you have friends or loved ones with cancer and would like some insight into how you may be able to support them best. You have ever felt gaslit by a doctor, or you want to know if there's such a thing as a cancer personality. Welcome to the podcast, Elizabeth. We are so excited to have you with us today. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. I am so sad that my co-host Jamie specifically can't be here because she too has had far too much personal experience with loved ones being diagnosed with cancer and all that follows. But I read your latest book, Rewriting Illness, from cover to cover, And I would love to start with you please telling us a little bit about why you wrote this book. Who is it for? Thank you. Thank you for for asking that. Uh, um, I wrote the book for a lot of reasons, but one reason was because a friend of mine who's a nurse practitioner and and whom I talk to a lot throughout my ordeal, uh, she said, you need to write this book to help people who are also going through this because what you went through uh, needs uh, needs to be explored, and people need to understand how common it is to uh, for for it to take so long to be diagnosed and to encounter all the medical uh, obstacles you encountered. And people need to hear need to hear from you uh, to be comforted and to be validated in their own experience, because I, I think everybody sort of finds this out on their own. That gave me a lot of courage to write this. I was very reluctant to write it uh, early on because I didn't want to talk too much about my body and my physical problems and all the things I'd gone through. And it was it was very painful and, and very upsetting. And I didn't really want to relive all of that. Uh, of course, as many people wouldn't want to relive a traumatic life experience. And I don't know that there's something much more traumatic than a cancer diagnosis. So I want to hook on... Well, first of all, thank you. So thank you for writing that so that other people going through what you went through can feel less alone. I love that you said that because I think that's really important. And I think that, as you said, most people discover this separately because no one talks about it. And I I want to dig deeper into that. But before we do... I was I was surprised by the part of your book where you write about when you learned how doctors' own fears influence their comments to patients. Mm-hmm. Mostly because my personal experiences for surgery have been orthopedic, mm. right? And those doctors are quite opposite from mm-hmm. what you experienced with oncologists. And I mean, I, of course, have a theory as to why, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I would... Let me, if you could speak about that, please, because I was, full disclosure, I have lost parents to cancer. I have, I've lost a lot of family to cancer. I have a lot of family members currently dealing with cancer, living with cancer. So I'm not outside of it. I, Mm -hmm. you know, um, but I just, so I'd love to hear about that because I think it's very helpful. Okay. Um, Obviously, everything I say is, is somewhat 
general, right? Because I'm not speaking about every single doctor. And there, there are stereotypes about different kinds of doctors. My experience was that once I got to an oncologist, they're pretty straightforward because you, you've been diagnosed. Okay. Um, My, okay. Once you get to the, the place that says uh-huh. you've got this, uh-huh. they're pretty straightforward. But it was leading up to that, which took three months in my case. It, it seems to me those doctors had a harder time with the maybe you have cancer scenario. And it's those doctors who don't want to deal with it. And, you know, I think once you have cancer, it's like, okay, here's what we do. This is what's going to happen. And it's pretty straightforward, even when there are unknowns, right, and mm-hmm. uncertainties. It's still, you know, we're all we're all singing from the same book, but it's, it's in the diagnosis part where you have these symptoms and people are not quite sure and they're groping around and they're telling you your anxiety is your problem, which I heard too many times. It feels like you're a woman with hysteria. It feels like. Yeah. 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 And it was like, I I have this huge thing in my, in my armpit and you're not biopsying it. And you're telling me that my anxiety is my problem. And these were women doctors telling me. But I think it's those early doctors who were kind of on the front lines of people's symptoms who are a little touchy, right? Because they have a personal relationship with you. They're not going to be able to tell that you have cancer because determining cancer is a very complex process. It doesn't just happen in a doctor visit. I mean, they have to do tests and sonograms and sometimes biopsies. So the process is a complex one, and it doesn't just happen overnight. And so it's those early people, I think, who are the most skittish, let's just say. And they also, you know, a cancer diagnosis is is really scary. And so they're not going to toss off lightly. Well, I think maybe you have cancer because they don't want you to melt down in their office for, because they've got to pick you up and then they have to go on to the next patient. And I don't mean that they're cruel. I think they just... They don't want to go there unless they have to. And so I think it, it has, it's a practical reason. Like they don't want to say, you might have cancer. Um, at the same time, they don't want to dismiss it. And they, they want to follow through on it to make sure you get treatment. But there's, there's often a really long time period between the symptom and the diagnosis. And it's that period that was so extended for me for any number of reasons that some of them were incompetent, some of them were just that medicine takes a long time to to reveal things and tests, and then you have to do more tests, and then they say, come back. And, you know, and then doctors were looking at another medical issue I had, and I think they all hoped it was that one because that was less serious. And so there's a lot of emotional skittishness and a need not to... to terrify the patient by saying, I think you have cancer, you know, as a practical matter. And I think if you, if you do have cancer, I mean, and obviously I tell the story in a book, in the book of uh, a woman whom I don't know, but a friend told me she went to the doctor for a checkup and something happened in that checkup that made her doctor say, you need to go to Memorial Sloan Kettering right now. You can't go home first. It's wild. And I think she must have had leukemia. Okay. I, and I, I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to pretend to know things I don't know. But, you know, I think in rare cases that might happen. So there's some indication that, you know, something is really serious. But for a lot of cancers, these are tumors that are growing. Tumors can grow slowly, but they can also grow quickly. But when they're growing, they can be treated 
once they've been growing for some time, okay? So it could be that doctors understand that the way tumors grow, they don't need to be treated that day. So there's a lot of really conflicting messages. As a woman, I get a mammogram every year, and and I've never had a bad mammogram, but I've had a few sort of like the doctor comes in and says, oh, I'm not sure about that, what about that? So, you know, it's terrifying. We all know it's terrifying. But my sense is when you do a mammogram, if they suspect anything is suspicious in your breast, they don't say come back in two weeks. They don't dismiss you. They don't say, oh, well, we'll keep a lot, keep an eye on this. That I think that never happens. So in my case, when the doctors kept saying, come back in two weeks, well, let's look at this other thing. Nobody seemed to be panicking about this huge thing in my arm. And that was what was so strange. You know, I went to doctor after doctor for various things. It was only like the fourth doctor I went to who said, you know, we need to biopsy this. And like, why, why didn't these other people do that? In answer to your question, different doctors have different uh, kind of stereotype personalities. And I haven't had a lot of surgery, but my understanding from, uh, you know, the gutter from the street right, is that, <laughs> uh, that surgeons are notoriously blunt and they don't, typically they don't have a great bed, bedside manner. There may be surgeons who are, I, I, I don't want to offend anybody, but the stereotype. I'm hysterically laughing as silently as I can because my father-in-law is an orthopedic surgeon. And, it just... <laughs> and I, I'm not going to ask so you to I describe. So I know a lot of them. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to describe their bedside manners. I wouldn't do that to you uh, or to the profession. But doctors, I mean, like pediatricians have a different profile than an orthopedic surgeon, right? True. I mean, somebody who becomes a pediatrician is, is not going to become an orthopedic surgeon. It's a different personality. So surgeons are typically much less warm and fuzzy. But whereas your GP might be more congenial and, and more interested in, in making sure you don't go into a panic, right? In answer to your question, late in the process of writing the book, I read Atoll Gawande's book. I think it's called On Mortality. And he's a wonderful writer, writes a lot for The New Yorker. And he basically reminded me or told me in, in so many words that doctors don't have a lot of training in how to talk to people about death and dying. They don't. It's like you think that it would be totally integrated into their training and it's not. They have something called, you know, doctor-patient relationship for an hour a week. And in one of those hours, they talk about dying. It's something absurd. And when I read that, I thought, oh, okay, so these, these doctors really, they didn't get a lot of training in this. I went to a psychiatrist because I was depressed during particularly the early stages. And I said to the doctor, uh, I said, you know, all these doctors said to me, I don't think you have cancer. He said, well, Liz, you know, doctors don't like to give people bad news. And I just about fell off my chair. I thought, really? Like, I'm supposed to be sympathetic to doctors? Like, this is their job. Yeah. <laughs> and he wanted me to kind of say, oh, yeah, well, the poor doctors, you know, they, they just don't like this. So so I, I tried to be, I tried not to be just enraged at the doctors. And I, I don't feel, in, I, I feel enraged at the ones who told me. I don't think you have cancer. <laughs> no, I feel enraged at the ones who told me that they were worried about my anxiety. Ah, that, that, okay. was the, that was really the... Well, the I was enraged for you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. But anyway, I think that there's a, a big variety in doctors. And I think the, the process of getting a diagnosis takes a long time. And when you go... And when I went into this with this lump under my arm, I thought, I'm going to find out in a week. I'm going to find out on Monday. I'm going to find out on Tuesday what's going on. 
And it, that didn't happen. And I had no idea it, this whole thing would go on for so long. You know, I, as I said, I was when I was reading your book, I was enraged for you because it just something in me just gets really fired up when somebody says, I don't think you have cancer and you're, they're a medical professional. It, right. it feels a little like gaslighting to me personally, just because of the experiences that I've lived in my life. Right. I'm just so impressed that you were certain that there was more to this lump underneath mm-hmm. in your armpit than that you just kept, you persevered. I mean, for me, that would have been incredibly difficult to do. I think many of our listeners wish they could be so certain of what they, you know, I'm doing air quotes for our listeners, <laughs> know yeah. in the face of an, quote, expert, because you and I didn't go to medical school, but they mm-hmm. did. So we're kind of at their mercy mm-hmm. to know <laughs> what's right in the medical fields, you know? Right. I, just like if they wanted to write something, they might come to you. Mm-hmm. you. You know, you go to them for medical expertise. And so not a life or death situation. But my third child, my first two, ch- I had twin girls first. And the risk factors for hip dysplasia, which is extraordinarily common in infants and very treatable up to six months old when the bones ossify. So my twins were girls. So multiples, female, breech. Firstborn. Those are the four risk factors for hip dysplasia. So I was educated all about it. They were sonogrammed. They luckily didn't have it. We switched pediatricians because we moved when my third came. And he was the happiest baby alive. And every time I lifted up his right leg only to change his diaper, he screamed bloody murder. And the rest of the time, he was the happiest baby ever. And Mm. I came into the pediatrician and I said, I think he has hip dysplasia. At three weeks old, I said this. And at that point, you can basically double diaper a baby and it is fixed because they're just squishing it all back together. Mm -hmm. Or they can wear a harness for a couple of weeks. And if you catch it after six months, it's a lifetime of surgeries and body Mm -hmm. casts. Mm -hmm. And she said, no, 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 you're just tired. You have three kids. You have three under three. You're tired. You're seeing things that aren't there. And so, you know, I was exhausted because I had three under three and I had an infant and, you know, and... I went home and I was a little frustrated and it kept happening. So I came back at like, you know, the two month visit or whatever. And I was like, listen, I really think I would really like to get this checked out. I think he has hip dysplasia. You know what? Some babies just don't like their diapers being changed. And I'm like, it's just his right side. That's a coincidence. And she didn't run a test, which is required by New York state law. I was in Manhattan at the time. It's required by New York state law that the doctor scan an infant if the parent asks about it waved me off, brushed me off. I have him at some like other random doctor for something completely opposite. And he's like this, it was a woman. And she said, you have to take this child to an orthopedic surgeon. And I was like, for what? (laughs) She was like, it it had nothing to do with his hips, this appointment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He has hip dysplasia. And at this point, he's eight months old. We have passed the six month mark. And my poor child has been in body cast for a giant portion of his life with painful surgery, painful surgery. So I tell this whole story because, like, I wish that I had, like, I knew, I knew, (laughs) and, but I was like, nope, she's the doctor, she went to medical school, so I'm just going to accept what she says. And because of that, my child has suffered, and that's inexcusable to me. It is, absolutely. So I just, like, for me, it was extraordinary, and I think a lot of people have similar situations. Yeah, I think they do. I think they do. And so after that, for me, 
I've had a really hard time trusting doctors again Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because that experience was, it changed, you know, again, not life or death, but a lot of pain and suffering. Yeah. Pain and suffering is is pretty serious about your child. Yes. Uh, So how do you ever trust a doctor again after the experience that you had? I mean, it's devastating not to be taken seriously, but you persevered and you kept going. Do you have advice for people in that? Because I think at some point, everyone's going to be in a similar situation. So advice wow. for how to persevere <laughs> and advice for how to trust doctors again after. Okay. One of the things that happened to me was that for several weeks when I had this lump that, and doctors would feel it and they'd say, oh, that's huge. Several weeks into this, I woke up one day feeling awful, absolutely awful. And I'd never felt that way before. I was weak. I was, I had all kinds of strange symptoms. And I called the doctor and I said, I need to be in the hospital. There's something wrong with me. And I'd ne- I wasn't somebody who called my doctor ever and mm-hmm. said that. I'd never said that in my life. I wasn't somebody who called the doctor all the time. I, I was hypochondriacal in a very private way. And I said, there is something really wrong with me. And this doctor said, well, you know, your anxiety, come in for some more blood work. And I could barely, literally barely get up. I could barely move my legs. And that's one of the symptoms of lymphoma. Mm-hmm. And nobody, again, it's like, oh, you're tired. Oh, you're anxious. Oh, take some more antidepressants. You know, that was terrible. I I knew there was something wrong with me. And then I I eventually started to feel better. So when I was eventually diagnosed and I got this clear diagnosis, I had the great good fortune to find a really good doctor. And a friend of mine had told me about a lymphoma doctor who had treated her mother many years ago. So when I got home from the doctor's appointment where I was given the definitive diagnosis, I, I called this doctor's office and he's a legendary doctor. And <clears throat> he called me that night. That so I'd been mind. blown off by doctors for months. And here this man called me at 6.30 at night and talked to me for half an hour. And he said, well, I'll call you tomorrow. And here's my cell phone number. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and he was and he'd been doing this for fifty years. It wasn't Truly like he, one he, in he, a million. <laughs> yeah. Everyone in in his office was like that, you know. And so uh I knew I was getting a different kind of care. And so when you say how do I trust doctors again, you can tell who's on your side and who's sort of too busy. I wanna say, I mean, I think the story that you tell is horrifying and I can understand that you wouldn't trust doctors. Um at the same time, doctors are under unbelievable stress because of the medical system and insurance and the dictates of insurance. And, you know, a lot of them are leaving the profession. I mean, it's a very, it's a really bad situation. Um, so even trying to be a good doctor these days can, can be really difficult. All of that said, I think I do trust doctors, but I also think I'm sort of like in the trust but verify category now. And now if somebody puts me off, I can't remember what it was recently, but somebody put me off about something. And I said, you know, last time this happened, I had cancer. So I'm not, I don't really want to hear this. So I think that if you can be assertive when somebody puts you off and say, I'm not, I'm actually not leaving here until you do something. Hmm. I've never had to do that. Okay. But I think it can be done. And, but I think it's a constant, we have to be constantly vigilant. And we have to understand that doctors aren't always right, as they, in your case, and that 
if you sense something, you have to maybe go to another doctor. You know, maybe take your child to urgent care. I had a medical thing recently where I ended up going to urgent care. They sent me to the ER and I got seen right away because I had been sent by urgent care. So I do want to just say to people, they're all, and six years ago, there weren't urgent care facilities on every street corner. Now right. they're like, they're more like more of those than there are Starbucks. But <laughs> in your, in your community, if you have an urgent care place and your doctor is not giving you satisfaction, one thing to do is to go to the urgent care. They can sometimes say, go to the hospital, go to the ER. You need to do this. You need to do that. It's another tool that I hope people don't have to avail themselves of, but it's there. And the other thing is, you know, you sometimes just have to insist. And I can't always say that's going to work, but I think in, in the situation, some of the situations that I was in, if I had known more about what a biopsy consisted of, which I didn't know, I would have insisted on a biopsy, a fine needle aspiration biopsy at the time. I didn't know what it meant to have a biopsy. It's a very complex series of procedures. Um, but now that I know what they are, I would say, you tell them you want to find needle aspiration biopsy immediately or tomorrow. And that's a fairly simple procedure. When they find something in your breast, that's not the first thing they do is they stick a needle in and they pull some cells out and they can tell if they're abnormal. They can't tell anything more, but they can tell if they're abnormal. So it's the first stage. The other levels of biopsy are more complex and more invasive and more expensive. But the first one is that one. And I didn't know about that in, during all this. And nobody said, let's, let's just do a, an FNA here. Nobody said that in, until six weeks into this. Which is bananas because that, for me, I would hope that, my, that the first doctor you saw would have recommended it. But I mean, to be fair, they said this is a swollen lymph node. But anybody who was a doctor who felt it might have felt that it was not a swollen lymph node. I didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. But having read what I've read since about how swollen lymph nodes feel versus tumors or malignant lymph nodes, somebody who had some medical experience could have felt this and said, hmm, let's get this biopsied, which eventually happened. But it was shocking to me that it didn't happen much earlier on. And, and in fact, the, the first people who did the sonogram were shocked when they heard that the, my doctor hadn't advised that. I love your tip about the urgent care. I think it's a great tip for listeners just to sort of have in their pocket. Mm -hmm. You know, I hope that no one needs it, but right. just to know that the one doctor that you are seeing in that moment isn't the only game in town. I think right. it's really important to remember that. Right. And when you were talking, it reminded me of the part of the book, you actually brought it up several times, that you weren't the person that asked all the questions in the room. Right. When you were in the doctor's office, you wish you had right. asked more questions. You wish, I don't know if it was courage or I don't know what the right word is. I'm not going to put any words on you because you're here um, and you can see for yourself. But I think that, you know, that in media generally, there's a lot about patient advocacy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think some people bring another person to the appointment with them and they have a pad of paper with questions ready to go. And some people actually have somebody called a patient advocate who they hired to come with them, but many people don't have that luxury. Mm -hmm. So do you have any tips for patients who do have a lot of questions, but don't want to take up the doctor's time, don't want to ask silly questions? Do you have anything to say to those people? <laughs> 
my guru in this was a woman named Dina Colbert, who was a coach and she was a cancer advocate and she had had cancer 40 years before. She was very much of the, I, I go in there with 10 questions and I make sure the doctor answers them. And I was too afraid to find out what the answers were. So I, I was, it was totally fear. It was absolutely mm. fear on my part. I w- was very much sort of doing this on a need to know basis. And I knew it. And I knew it was my fear that was keeping me from getting certain information. And there, there was a, I think there, were, there was a moment when I could have said to the nurse practitioner who put me off, you need to give me a biopsy today. I'm not leaving here without it. Okay. Now, I didn't say that because I was afraid of getting the biopsy. Um, but she assured me that everything would be fine, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it's very hard. I, I will not kid anybody that it's hard to do this. But it's really good when you have an appointment to go in, if you can write down questions beforehand, write them down. Um, Ask to tape the doctor when he or she is giving you the answers so that you have a record of them because you're never going to remember. Whatever they tell you, you're not going to remember it right. Even if you think, I'm going to remember this for the rest (laughs) of my life, you're not going to remember everything. So bring a Bring a notebook. Bring, bring a person with a notebook. Turn on your phone. Ask the doctor if you can tape it. And come with your questions. And you have a right to have these questions answered. Even if the doctor is busy, you have a right as a patient. There's a patient's bill of rights, and I'm going to tell you that you have that right. And, but, but people are very different. Some people don't want to know. I liken it to when a child wants to know where babies are from. You know, you just tell, you just, they ask, they say, where do babies come from? And, and you just give them a little bit of information. And that's kind of how doctors are about a lot of things, especially very scary things. They give you a little bit of information because some people don't want to know a lot. Okay. So there's a real range of how much information people want. And my friend Dina wanted all the information and I wanted like none. <laughs> I just wanted like, you know, okay, I'll take care of it. Whatever I need to do, just don't tell me. And I talk to, have talked to people since then who say, I didn't want to know. I didn't want to hear about it. I just wanted, give me the treatment and I'll, I'll do it. it. It wasn't they were in denial. They just didn't want all the gory details. So I think doctors are very sensitive to that. They're not going to say, oh, let me tell you everything about what it means to have cancer. They're not going to do that. They're going to answer the questions that they need to answer at the time. So I will just say again, it is very hard to ask the questions and you don't need to ask all the questions, okay? But you need to feel that your doctor is giving you enough information so that you can make some decisions. The other thing that I really want to suggest to people or let them know is if you live in New York or Boston and you're near a major cancer center, great. If you live someplace else and you get your treatment or you go to a doctor and they suggest cancer treatment somewhere else, you are entitled to get a second opinion at Dana-Farber in Boston or Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York. And I think at MD Anderson in Houston, they have programs called the Second Opinion Program. You don't have to travel to these places. I think you just send your medical records and doctors review it. And I want to encourage people to do that because treatments vary. They can vary. They don't, I don't want to say they all vary, but they can vary. If you're at a major cancer center, they may have very different treatments that they're recommending for certain things. And you as a patient, you do have the right to get a second opinion. 
And you don't have to travel to that place to get it. You don't have to be a rich person to get a second opinion. So I really want to encourage people to do that. And major cancer centers, they do trials. They do cut, they're doing cutting edge treatments that may not have gotten back to wherever you live to where I'm not going to Ohio or wherever I could, it could be like Cincinnati, but you have a right to a second opinion and they're not hard to get. I love that advice. That's amazing. And it's, it's interesting because I, with a few years ago, after one of my relatives was getting the runaround um, and there was a major misstep of one of her, her cancer team, um, I insisted that she actually physically come to New York City and go to MSK. And that turned out to be the best thing ever. But I am sure she would have done it a lot sooner had she, have known, had she known about that second opinion yeah. program. That's amazing. Yeah, I, you know, my sister and I know somebody in Connecticut and she was diagnosed with something and she went to the doctor and my sister said she was very close to New Haven and to Yale, yeah. which has a very good cancer center. And we got her to go to Yale where they had a completely different treatment for her. Yeah, it's so it's very important to and I don't want to say mean things about any any places, but there are these places that are the premier centers that are doing the most advanced work and you can go to them and you don't have to be a rich person to to get a second it's important to say that because i think there's a sense of like oh i'm i'm not rich i can't go to new york i can't afford 100%. that and you just go on the website and look for second opinions and there's a procedure you can follow i love that and i think that is great advice for all of our listeners who may be going through something or have a loved one going through something or just to file away for later mm-hmm. just in case when I asked the original question about um, not asking questions, uh-huh. you spoke a, a lot about fear, which I feel like I'm the opposite. I want to know everything and every possibility. I don't want to waste anyone's time asking silly questions. I I feel like so many doctors come in and out like a whirlwind and I'm just right. like, oh, but I, 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 like try to follow them out right. the door to ask one question. So I feel like I don't ask questions for a very different reason Mm -hmm. because fear is what you spoke about. What's worse to you? Because for me, the fear of the unknown, my brain goes to the worst possible scenario every time, worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. So for me, knowing it's almost always going to be better than the unknown because I will definitely think I'm dying tomorrow if Mm -hmm. I don't know. So what after a diagnosis for you? Which fear is worse, the fear of the unknown or the reality of knowing? <laughs> I, wish I, I wish I could give you, a, well, it's definitely this. You know, they're, they're both scary. But, but once you're actually diagnosed, then you, know, have, a di- you have a different set of uh, obligations, right? You have to find out what your treatment is. You have to find the doctors who are going to treat you. Sometimes it's not a parent who's going to treat you. So I, I suppose it's better to know that you have something and then you can go about getting treated. You know, they're both scary. I mean, I, I, don't, I, I can't sugarcoat either of them or I can't say this is worse than that, but they're both scary and they both take a lot of fortitude. I think it's really important to have someone with you, uh, whether it's a sibling or a friend or a partner, if you can have someone with you and have some people lined up when you get home from this appointment I found it very comforting to talk to people who had had cancer and survived cancer. Those were my support group. I didn't want to go to a support group where I knew there would be people who were sick and maybe sicker than I was. And I didn't want to hear about 
who had this and who had that and who who had died and I couldn't I didn't have the strength to to do that. But well, it's I re- overwhelming and that could add to the overwhelm. Yeah. Yeah. I went through a period where I just really wanted to talk to people who'd had cancer and survived. And so I called up people who were friends, but maybe people I hadn't talked to in years. And I said, oh, I, this is what happened to me and what happened to you. Tell me, just tell me what happened. Mm-hmm. And just he, he, and they couldn't say to me, oh, you're going to be fine. But they could say, I'm fine. I meant 5% of the people with my kind of cancer survive and I survived. And I was like, oh, that's, <laughs> that's a good story. I like <laughs> yeah. that story. Yeah. So I found those, the talking to people who'd had cancer very, that was very beneficial to me, very good for my mental health. And then everybody who's been through this has other stories. Like they say, oh, I had another friend who went through this and she's fine now. You know, I just kept wanting to hear, oh, she's fine now, you know. Yeah. And, and of course, people who've been through this, they know what it's like. So they know they're not going to say some of the stupid things that people say. You'll be fine. Don't worry, don't worry. Or they, you know, it's gonna I be fine. Everything's gonna be okay. Yeah. No, I, I had somebody who said, he said, "So you have lymphoma." Now I understand there are two kinds of lymphoma. One's the good kind, and one's much worse. <laughs> and which one do you have? I have the worst one. Thanks. Yeah, I said, "Oh, I have the worst one." It's that, that I don't think anybody who had cancer would say that. I, I'm just making making that assumption, but. The other thing is, like, I didn't want anybody to say to me, so what's your prognosis? <laughs> Don't ask me that. I, but people do say things. They say things that can be hurtful and they say, they say too much and they say the wrong things. And, you know, it's very, it's really a minefield, right? Having cancer is, it's such a, such a charged word and it's a whole constellation of illnesses right it can be you could have cancer in your foot and you could have cancer in your brain and you know you could have cancer in your finger i mean it can happen anywhere and so there what i mean is that there's so many different kinds of cancer that it it kind of encompasses everybody at some point mm-hmm. and so everybody has a little bit of or a lot of personal experience with it so we all have a lot of stories and we all have a lot of kind of neuroses about it or what things we want to hear and we don't want to hear and so it's, it, it's really a, it's kind of seems to be a universal, oh, let's call it a disease. But I also think it's really important to tell people that there are incredible treatments now and people do not die from cancer the way they did 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. They don't. I'm not speaking about everyone, but I heard Jane Fonda speak the other day, a little clip of her. She had lymphoma last year. She was saying, well, I'm 86, but I only feel like I'm 80. But the thing is that I'm in good health. Well, I had cancer, but that's behind me. And it's like, whoa, she had cancer, but that's in the past. And it's great to know that when you're 86, you can have, or 80 or 85, you can have cancer and then it gets treated and then you move on. Mm-hmm. I had another friend who was about 80 who got lung cancer and he got immunotherapy for eight years and died at the age of 88 and lived a very full life during those eight years. So there are all kinds of treatments that didn't exist some years ago. I want people to feel encouraged to get help when they, when they, when they feel something. When they feel a seven warning sign, go to the doctor right away. Yeah. But also realize that whatever happens is going to take some time. You have to push because the system sort of pushes back against you. Yes. No. And that is. And I didn't know that, you know, Mm -hmm. I had, I just thought I'm going to go and it's going to be fine and they'll tell me and I'll move on. Yeah. And that was so different from what happened. 
Yeah, I feel like we're taking up so much of your time. We need to wrap up, but I want to, I have like 900 more questions. So I want to ask one more of the big ones. Okay. You know, you just spoke about how now there are, and we've been speaking about how cancer treatments are so much more cutting edge. We've come so far. Treatments are being developed and worked on every day. And also when you were saying that, this wasn't part of the question originally, but it'll tie in. It occurred to me that cancer is so much more prevalent Mm -hmm. than it ever was. And maybe that's because they didn't know to label it cancer. But you talk in your book about a cancer personality, like just the idea of it, the idea Mm -hmm. of it. And our audience specifically, who's listening to this show, they understand that stress causes inflammation. Inflammation is a root cause of all disease because we have doctors on here all the time talking about inflammatory diseases. So it's reasonable to assume that if someone is chronically stressed, their likelihood of getting disease or illness is higher because they're setting the stage for that. So in your research and experience, does the same hold true for cancer? In your your research and experience, I know you're not a doctor, so I'm not asking for a medical opinion on this one, but that's where the idea for me of the cancer personality comes in. You know, does does it come down to a person's perception of stress? Because that would cause inflammation if they perceive, you know, lots of little things every day as stressful as opposed to somebody who like lets things roll off their back. Okay. Is that... How? Okay, so let me just say that this ca- the cancer personality. I don't believe in the cancer personality. That was a that was something that used to be very a popular idea before we understood more about cancer. And so Susan Sontag mentioned it in 1978, talking about the cancer personality. And we used to think there was that because people didn't know where it came from, and and it, it was sort of a way of of uh, explaining why people mm-hmm. got cancer. But is that what it was tied to? Was it tied to the well, idea of like an anxious person, a stressed person? Uh, no, it was that... tied to a repressed person. It was tied to somebody who, who held everything in. It right. wasn't tied to inflammation, okay? It was tied to uh, somebody who was like repressed and maybe even sexually repressed. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what it was. Uh, and uh, it, was a, it was a theory to explain mm-hmm. cancer, okay? Mm-hmm. It wasn't anything, it wasn't a medical um, diagnosis or anything. It was a mm-hmm. theory to explain cancer, the same way the Greek Greeks, they made up gods to explain the weather. The sun. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so they had a god of the weather because how else could you explain all the craziness in the weather? But it was not, it was not a medical thing. And I don't believe in the cancer mm-hmm. personality. Okay. So now I think the hard facts are one in two men is going to get cancer and one in three women is going to get cancer. So we couldn't all have the cancer personality, right? Mm-hmm. I think if you live long enough, you, you probably will get cancer. My experience is a lot of people, you know, get cancer in their 80s and 90s. Again, not everyone. So the cancer personality was a sort of a myth that people clung to when they didn't understand why cancer came to some people and not to others. I love dispelling a good myth. And I think yeah, that's it. Yeah. I think it's just as important as, you know, uncovering truths. I think that when you dispel a myth, you are uncovering almost more truth because myths are contagious. And they're easy to hang on to because mm-hmm. they, they satisfy, uh, they give us an answer to something that we don't know the answer to. A hundred percent. And I recently had a loved one who was experiencing a multiple cancer diagnosis. Mm. And that was something she said about herself. So I really do. I So for me, it was important to address uh-huh. the cancer uh-huh. personality because while you understand that it is not a real thing, I think many people out there, 
as you said, because there's no answer. Why did I get this? Why me? Why, why am I the one with cancer? Why did I get another cancer? It, it's not the way you think. I think when you say you have, cling to the idea of a cancer personality, it's almost like you can blame yourself. You can mm -hmm. say, if I, if I had a different, per if I worked on my personality more, I wouldn't get cancer. And I think mm -hmm. it's a way of blaming yourself, which I don't think is the issue. Now, having said all that, there are cancer-causing behaviors that we, we indulge in. Yes. A lot of people get cancer who don't have any bad behaviors, right? But cigarette smoking causes cancer. Eating uh, blackened meat is carcinogenic. Going out in the sun without sunscreen constantly is, can lead to cancer. There are certain very specific behaviors that do set the stage for cancer. And so if you have a cancer personality, maybe you're somebody who does all those things and says, I don't care, right? Like that might be the cancer personality. But I love there, that. there are certain things, there are certain reasons we get cancer that have no, um, that have no basis in, in our behavior. But mm -hmm. there's a lot of behavior that does cause cancer. And one, one is smoking and the other is drinking and smoking together. That increases your chance of getting cancer by some huge huge number. I don't know what the number is these days, mm -hmm. but it is, that is a, a really, uh, that's a cancer personality. If you drink and smoke, you got a cancer personality. I love that. I feel like you just rewrote the cancer personality. <laughs> right. Much right. You rewrote, it's like rewriting illness, rewriting right. the cancer personality. We just did it together. <laughs> I love that. All right. So at the end of each episode of our show, we do something called a karma call. Now, because your sister is very into meditation and all of those things, right? Isn't she the one who gave you your mantra? Yeah. So um, you may or may not know that karma is the Sanskrit word for action. Right. So we ask all of our amazing, inspiring guests, you, what is one small actionable item that our listeners could try out for a short period of time that would yield a large result? So small action, big result. Okay. So I'll tell you a mantra that I acquired when I was sick, and I don't think of myself as a mantra person, but I acquired this mantra. I heard when I was sick, I read about a play by a woman named Jenny Allen, uh, and she wrote a play called I Got Sick, Then I Got Better, and it was about her experience with ovarian cancer, and she did a performance, she did a play, and when I heard that, I would just, that became my mantra, I got sick, then I got better. And it seems strange that this little simple sentence could actually make you feel better. But I found myself, when I'd sort of go into a panic or go into some real deep fear, which was frequent, I would say, I got sick, then I got better. And I'd say, okay, if it can happen to Jenny Allen, then it can happen to me. I got sick, then I got better. And it's very simple, right? That mantras are simple, right? That's why they, they, we hold on to them. But I love the way it made me feel when I was really scared. And I'm donating it to anyone. I listening. love that. That's very generous of you. Yes, Thank wasn't that you. nice of me? <laughs> I got sick, then I got better. I love that. It's amazing. Everyone should try that on for size. And before we sign off, can you please tell all of our listeners where they can buy your book, Rewriting Illness, because I think everybody should, and where they can find you. Are you on Instagram? I am on Instagram. I, one good place to find me is on my website, which is elizabethbenedict.com. On Instagram, it's a little trickier, but if you go to my, my Instagram name is Art Stories Words. So people have mm -hmm. a hard time with that. But go to my website. You'll find out a lot about my book. 
the other things I write, and how to f buy my book. You can buy your my book today on Barnes & Noble, on Amazon, at your local bookstore. Um, you can easily Google the name of the book and find a million places to buy it. And the um, book name is Rewriting Illness. Rewriting Illness, A View of My Own. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in today. As always, please be sure to follow us wherever you consume your podcast. Be sure to check out Rewriting Illness everywhere books are sold. And of course, follow us on the gram at Off the Gram Podcast. See you next time. <laughs>